and welcome to episode 16 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello Mark, or should I say Dr. Mark, as uh, our listeners probably want to know that Mark passed his PhD viva on Tuesday and is now Dr. McClay, so congratulations. Thank you very much Malcolm. Very unofficially Dr. Mark McClay. I don't want to get in trouble with the university right now. You passed your PhD. <laughs> and also, uh, you're going to be lecturing at Glasgow Caledonian University. Yes, I was very lucky to pick up a job straight out of the PhD. Um, I imagine there's a few people listening that are throwing things at the... Uh, the, no, you can't really throw things at your earphones, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, Malcolm, you have managed to secure funding for a new research project, and but not in American history. Are you actually eligible to be on this podcast uh, anymore? No, well, we'll need, to, we'll need to think about that. No, uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to get a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Institute uh, for Advanced Studies in the Humanities here at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm looking at... Uh, government secrecy, secret intelligence, and uh, the media in Thatcher's Britain. But a small part of it, anyway. Sounds really dull. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, but yeah. Um, now that we've patted ourselves on the back, um, maybe you want to start us off with another wee vignette this week. Yes, why not? So, at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, during one of the numerous charges up Mary's Heights uh, to the Confederate defensive line, a young Irish-born soldier, Sergeant Thomas Plunkett, hoisted the colour banner of the 21st Massachusetts Infantry and rallied his comrades during the Union attack. The County Mayo native held the flag aloft until he was hit by a cannon blast, rather unpleasantly losing both arms in the process. Plunkett attempted valiantly to keep uh, to keep the flag, which to all intents and purposes was the stars and stripes of the regiment's name on it, flying, until he was carried from the field. His Irish blood literally obliterated the stripes on the banner, according to the famous Civil War nurse Clara Barton, who treated Plunkett's injuries. He's just, his is just one of thousands of stories detailing the bravery and loyalty of Irish-born and descended men displayed while fighting the American Civil War. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, and those uh, regular listeners might know might, that me and Malcolm tend to not be experts on the 19th century, the Civil War, and most definitely not the Irish. Um, but thankfully today we have got along one such expert, not putting any pressure on her at all. Uh, and Kat Basin, hello Kat. Hello, hello, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. It's an absolute pleasure. So you're a second year PhD student now? Yes, um, just he, Here at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, so could you tell us a wee bit about your academic background and then the topic of your research? Yeah, so I am just studying my second year at Edinburgh and I moved up here last year after spending almost five years living in London, did my undergrad at UCL and then my master's at King's College. Um, my undergrad was in history and I also got to spend a great year in America at the University of Pennsylvania as part of it and just surrounding myself with as much American history as possible. Um, but specialising where I could in the Civil War because it is the greatest and most important moment of American history, in my opinion. Oh No, it, it is. <laughs> Sorry, 20th century people. Uh, and then for my Masters, I went to King's to do American Studies to take a more interdisciplinary approach to, to the study of American history. And while I was doing that, I was really lucky to intern with the British Library and the lovely people who run the America's Collection there to help them produce an online gallery exhibition for the public on the library's holdings to do with Britain and the American Civil War um, as part of the sesquicentennial, so the 150th anniversary, amongst which the stuff that I was looking at and researching and writing about was a book of songs, including a book, um, collection of Irish songs. And I realised that I was spending a lot of time 
while I was still trying to write my thesis on my master's thinking about these Irish songs and thought, hey, presto, here's a great PhD proposal in the making. <laughs> um, and then the rest is is how I've ended up here. So I my actual thesis is on the sentiments that are expressed in Irish songs produced and written by Irish soldiers and about the Irish during the American Civil War, um, looking at the themes that they discuss, but then also how they use Irish music and a kind of Irish cultural diaspora kept alive through the war um, and in sort of ties into American migration and issues of Irish American identity as well. And later in the podcast, I think we'll be covering quite a few of those songs that uh, I've heard you talk about before in a, a paper at the SASA yes. uh, conference, the, the Irish Johnson Car and Bonnie Blue Fly. Yes, I remember. Like that. So yeah, we'll, de- we'll definitely cover that kind of stuff as well because it's a very interesting component of the Irish experience in the Civil War yeah so I mean you're basically filling a, a gap like nobody's really written on these Irish songs and everything is that what you were saying yeah so Civil War music in general has tended to be um, mostly musicology studies there's some movement now um, in Civil War history by Civil historians to look at the music in general but not the specifics yet so this is um yeah, just so bold enough to say new ground, but yeah. to, to specifically study them and put them in a historical context, it's not, it's not really been done before. Okay, um, so I mean, maybe to rather than going straight into the songs and everything, it's maybe best to start off with talking a wee bit about the Irish immigration. Now, I think most people would associate if they think about immigration or you know the fancy word diaspora that's used all the time now in, in the kind of sort of 18th and 19th centuries and maybe even the 20th century would think of Irish and there are Ireland and the Irish is most associated with those terms is this any different or is it especially true um, with regards to North America and specifically the United States well certainly in the mid 19th century Irish the Irish diaspora is really born as a result of the famine if to put it really bluntly, that is the main cause of it. But the history of Irish immigration to North America and Canada too, but particularly to sort of mainland America, begins way, way before that, um, back into the colonial period and early settlement. There are Irish coming over, principally Irish, Scots-Irish or Ulster Scots, depending on which historiography and which country you're in. Um, and they are, some of them are kind of former Jacobites who'd come from Scotland and down through Ulster and then migrated around Europe and then over to the colonies. Some are also Protestant supporting um, William of Orange supporters who settle. That's where the term hillbilly allegedly comes from. They all settle around Appalachia and Western Pennsylvania, Virginia, Georgia. And they have big communities there, but they're on a par probably with the size of German and Welsh migrants and Scottish migrants coming in the 18th century. There are waves of migrants through the end of the sort of mid 1600s and then in, through the 1700s. By the time you get to the 19th century, they're either culturally assimilated or just don't identify as being as ethnically different. But ethnic differ- uh, differentiation is is much more prevalent. So you people would sort of you'd be noted as being Welsh or German or Irish or Scots Irish. It's something that gets lost mm-hmm. later on through American history, and it's only just coming back into the writing of history now if you take a sort of four-nations or multi-nation approach to migrant history. Then you get the famine, um, sort of 1845, 1846, when it starts, and the first waves of Irish migrants coming over who are predominantly Catholic and in in much, much greater numbers, apart from slaves coming over from Africa and and parts of the British um, Empire up till about 1808 when the slave trade ends, the Irish are probably the largest group by far of a different group coming over to America. 
And so what are the, when it comes to the, you know, the, the 1840s and the famine, how many people are we talking about? It's, it's roughly about 2 million. Ireland loses about half of its population. Um, well, half the population is affected by the famine and potato blight. And also, importantly, ineffectual government responses from Westminster and from the rest of Britain. About 25% go, are lost either through death or, or migration. Uh, roughly 2 million make it to America. It's really worth pointing out that they, of course, do go to Canada and to Australia and to New Zealand and to Britain. That's sometimes forgotten about. But to a huge, sizable population do make it to America. So much so that by the 1850s, in the 1850s census, they're, they're creeping up on the census in huge numbers. And then by the 1860 census, their their numbers are very visible in the cities. Yeah, I was just wondering, you said, you know, you'd already talked about how some Irish had came across um, before the famine and everything, and um, I mean, a huge number, predominantly Catholics, came over after the famine. I mean, I know as a as a resident, as someone who was born in Glasgow, and, uh, you know, a lot, quite a few Irish had already came over, predominantly not um, Protestant Irish, um, before the famine, and then a huge lot of Catholic Irish came after, and that changed the perception um, among the local po- population, uh, particularly the working classes of of the the new batch of Irish who were then excluded more from from Glasgow life um, and other areas of Scotland, for example, is that similar um, in the United States? Are they stigmatised in a way that the first people to go weren't? Um, um, yeah, without question, the eighteen fifties sees the rise of the first real anti-immigration movement in America tied up with nativism sort of at the figurehead of that is the know nothing party in the 18 1850s and they pick on the fact that there is a sizable population who are seen to be different their main argument line of argument is that being catholic they're a threat to republicanism values because they see the pope as the ultimate authority mm. it's not just the irish that they go no nothings go after they also go after german catholics too um for the same reason that's just somehow that they're going to threaten republicanism which of course is completely unfounded and they're also kind of aided and abetted by certain parts of the media as well i know the, the cartoonist thomas nast is heavily anti-catholic and he draw you know draws these cartoons at the same time yeah cardinals as crocodiles going to eat American children and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and you start, they start picking up um, the same sort of very racist drawings and portrayals of the Irish that you, you see in Britain in the 18th century of them being ape-like and, and not the same and, and a threat to what eventually will become Anglo-Saxon values. It's something you see in the 1890s with other races too. That it will, It's the Irish who are the sort of first lot who are subjugated to that. But when you have, in the 1860 census... In New York, the Irish-born, actually born in Ireland population of, of New York by 1860 was 26%. It's the same in Boston. If you count New York and Brooklyn together, it's up to nearly 50%. Almost there are half of them born in Ireland. Born in yeah, Ireland in 1860 and, and possibly um, only living in the city for 5 to 10 to 15 years. Most of these ones are coming from 1846 onwards. You know, it's a you can see why... So the older residents, particularly in New York City, would have would have been a little bit alarmed that you had mm-hmm. this community who were not assimilating in the same way, weren't given the opportunity to assimilate. That's also worth mentioning. And so the, the immigrant Irish at this period, were they primarily an urban population? Predominantly, yes. They mostly stay in New York, Philadelphia and Boston. Um, so the main ports of entry, particularly New York. And they tend to stay 
in their communities, even though there's some really interesting research being done, particularly in New York, on the um, immigrant savings bank, which goes to show actually they had saved, they did save money quite quickly and could have moved out, but they tend to stay within communities and sort of form ethnic enclaves. Um, New York, the Five Points area is probably the most notorious. It's the one that's in, in Gangs of the Gangs of, Gangs New, of New York, yeah. which um, isn't accurate at all, but um, that's certainly where they live. Um, that is sort of known as being their kind of main stronghold. They then come up with arguments. This is when you start seeing this whole issue of no Irish need apply and the fact that they're being excluded from employment. That's actually an argument that begins in Britain and carries over. And there are songs written about this in the 1860s. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not this really did happen. It's true. I've seen evidence in newspapers of, of adverts, you know, saying we didn't want the Irish to apply for jobs, which we'll come back to probably when we start talking about the home front, because um, there are issues with that. So by the time we reach sort of 1860 then, um, the, the, you know, the, be the beginning of um, Abraham Lincoln's election and in 1861, the beginning of the Civil War. I mean, laterally, we associate the Irish with Democrats um, in terms of, you know, like, as famous, most famously where the Kennedy, Kennedy first mm. clan first make their, um, their sort of power base in, uh, in Boston and the Democratic machine there, as it's known. Is this the case already in 1860? Is there, like, in New York and Boston and these centres, um, is there already a strong Irish influence in terms of who holds the political power? They start, and I don't know enough about sort of the minutiae of the politics in 1860 in New York, but they do start forming um, fraternity groups that have a lot of power. You start seeing the building of Tammany Hall and, and as a centre point for Irish, uh, the communities to, as a, as a spokesperson for the communities, but then also to start influencing. And yes, they are Democrats supporting. They, of course, claim that Andrew Jackson has Irish roots, so... You know, it's the party of the of Jackson and, and Jacksonian democracy. Obviously, the Know Nothing Party develop into the Whig Party, who develop into the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So there is immediately an anti-Republican um, sense that you know, these this is a party that still contained people who were quite nativist in their views. How that plays out then in during the war politics is a lot more complicated when you start seeing the split between soldiers and civilians, which we can talk about later, because you know, actually how hostile they were to Lincoln is is very different from how hostile they were to, to Republicans. So just uh, quickly then, would you say that next to... is it, is it Would it be going too far to say that next to Southerners, at the Irish were the next aggrieved about Lincoln being elected? Or would you say that perhaps goes too far? I think that goes too too far. It's quite, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a big generation. And yeah. of course, there are Irish down in the South too, in slightly smaller numbers. And, and the, the leg the old legacy of Scots-Irish families down in the South too. I mean, they considered themselves to be Southerners more than Irish, first and foremost, so they would have just been anti-Lincoln because of that, not because of any kind of political hostility. So I think let's, let's turn now to the, the Civil War. We mentioned the kind of the eve of the Civil War. And in our the fourth episode of the, the podcast, all that time ago, mm -hmm. uh, we covered the Civil War in a general sense. Uh, but you know, today we're obviously going to be specifically looking at the contributions made by Irish Americans to both the cause of the North uh, and the South. Uh, now, in the North, I'm given to understand there's about at least thirty to forty army regiments with Irish uh, in their name, and our you know the opening vignette you know illustrated uh, you know, a great dedication uh, to the Northern cause by an Irish sergeant you know holding the colours and then being horribly injured and all that kind of thing. But 
as you'll be able to tell us, it was a lot more complex than that in the North and the South. So perhaps it's best to maybe think about the the military experience first and then we'll think about the civilian home front yeah. experience. So, I mean, what is the story of the Irish involvement well, in the, the Civil War? Well, the story has to start just before the war in, in 1860 during the visit of the Prince of Wales um, to North America. He'd gone to Canada and then down to New York over a space of four months. This is the future Edward the Seventh, And the city officials in New York, when he gets there, decide to put on a big parade of all the city's militia to show how great New York is at this point. And, you know, Broadway is a great street for marches and parades. And amongst them marching are a group who are the 79th Highlanders, who were born out of Scottish fraternity units in the city. Um, they used to wear kilts and they go on um, to perform their own civil war service. And also amongst this group in the parade were meant to be the 69th New York militia who were um, comprised of Irish-born and descended men, a lot of them um, first-generation famine migrants. And they were led by, in my opinion, a very charismatic leader. Um, I spent a lot of days reading his stuff, so he's he's my hero, really. Uh, Michael Corcoran, at this point, Colonel Michael Corcoran, um, who was from County Sligo originally. He'd emigrated in, in 1849 and had risen through the ranks of the militia, become became their colonel. And for some reason decides, you know what, I'm not marching my men past Edwards. Now, it's often taken that this is a sign of Irish nationalism and anti-Irish feeling towards British as part of their, their very poor response to the famine. I hesitate because there's also suggestions that he was just using military rules about how many militia marches and militia should go on a year. Um, he also doesn't go to the ball because he claims illness. But the story got in the presses and um, was incredibly uh, popular for this time. It's sort of one of the, it comes not long before um, South Carolina's secession. So it's one of the kind of nationally known stories. So much so that um, Corcoran's actually captured by Confederates at the first Battle of Bull Run. And they know who he is when he's taken down to the South to various prison holdings in, in forts. They, really? they, he is the famous Michael Corcoran because... Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that he was just like, nope, I'm not marching these Irishmen past past Edward. And you mentioned you know, the the first battle of Bull Run uh, there, and in, in the kind of the, the notes for the for the podcast at Bull Run, the first battle of Bull Run, there's Irish regiments fighting Irish regiments uh, on on both sides. The the brilliantly named Virginia Hibernians and the Emerald Guard and all these, these fantastic names, these versions. Yeah, they do come but up. They're, they're fighting each other. Yes, and it's it's a, a horrible forerunner of what then keeps happening throughout the war is uh, there are Irish regiments in both armies. The Union has more of them because just there are more um, more Irish up there fighting. Actually, to give a statistic, the, the big statistic is that there are, it's now thought there are about 200,000 Irishmen who fought during the Civil War that's probably the Irish born and descended. If you start counting second, third generations, it's a little bit higher. The majority of those, about 150,000 were in the union. And so they uh, have enough, particularly in the first couple of years of war, to form their own Irish, specifically Irish regiments. And some of them gave themselves very um, exciting Irish names. There's a couple of Emerald Guards in in Union Army regiments too. The South, um, the Southern ones tend to differentiate themselves. That's partly also to do with... um, more of a Scots-Irish identity too. The Virginian, given Virginia was home to a lot of Scots-Irish, um, that partic- those particular regiments were more um, Scots-Irish origins, and you can tell in the names of the muster lists too. There's just you could just spot 
um, Irish surnames differently. At the Battle of Bull Run, the 69th New York Militia, who will become an infantry regiment, and Corcoran, to prove his loyalty, that he is really loyal to America, says, look, I've got an army. Don't don't court-martial me for the whole Edward affair. I'll I'll go leave my men. They go straight down um, to Washington. They're one of the very first units to get there, and they'll sort of wait around for Bull Run. And they are there then on the very first sort of proper battle of the war, and their story then carries forward and they form the 69th form the foundation of then what becomes the union army's irish brigade um eventually at one point made up of uh, about five regiments three from new york one from pennsylvania one from massachusetts again reflecting the fact that they are um that those are the main areas of population but throughout the war they are coming up against confederate irish regiments and companies from Georgia and from Texas and from Arkansas, the Carolinas, pockets of sort of uh, Irishmen. So Some they're, of they're basically all over the place. They are yes. all yeah, they yeah. are all over the place, and it actually goes to show the spread, the spread, and the fact that it you know so much of Irish American historiography focuses on New York and the urban centers because that's where the most of them are. But actually, they they did spread out throughout, and there's certainly militia units in Arkansas that will form from Irish men who actually were pre pre-civil war existing and they muster too when the confederates go to war so i mean and what you've just described there you've quite eloquently painted a picture of of the irish being heavily involved in this war um you know more so from the northern point of view than the the southern point of view even though they were formed all around the uh, even though they were still existing in the south but i mean for example so if i've read i've read some of uh, susanna euro's work on this um and from looking at it from the civilian point of view and when she touches on the, the army thing you would get the impression that the irish were actually mostly anti this war um they tended to not favor the, the union side or at least it and weren't fans of abraham lincoln and the republicans i mean what would you would you agree or disagree with that that point of view really bluntly i disagree with that point of view you for too long, the military side, um, the military aspect and the military involvement of the Irish has perhaps been forgotten about because, yes, it does involve a lot of troop movements and where they're positioned on battlefields and at key moments. And that's become slightly less glamorous in civil war history now. We're more into the cultural and the social. It's not and... proper history unless you have a map with yeah. lines on it showing where regiments are. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it was all history. one in the factories. <laughs> there was, the battles don't matter. They can... <laughs> well, having done civil war history all the way through my, my academic career so far, I've been a fan of is the right word civil history you went to the university of pennsylvania gettysburg's in pennsylvania we think we know you're a fangirl yeah i i, <laughs> I have many photos from gettysburg but i i never i mean there's certain i mean gettysburg is one of them um but there are certain battles you just know as a civil historian but this doing this research i've had to learn so much about the military side of things and, and regiments and the differentiations between brigades and companies and that is something that's not in in civil war history as much today in the teaching of it and the reading of it. And that's something that, yeah, Susanna Euro is really good at looking at. She studies Irish Catholic volunteers in the Union Army. But there is a pervading sense in her work that they were all disillusioned. And as the war went on, they just got more and more hostile and more negative, which ignores a lot of the stories that come out of the war. Um, and that that leads on to the sort of home front issues and the issues of the draft riots, and you have to put all of that into a long, a bigger context of what's going on with those who are fighting, and then what's going on 
continue thinking about the you know, the battles before we'll then we'll turn to the home front and the the draft riots and everything. But Irish regiments are present at most of the major battles. I mean, Tita, I mean the two ones you know, and Tita and Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, the two absolutely critical ones. So what's their role in those? And what's the change in over time? <clears throat> well, Antietam, we'll start with Antietam because it is actually the 153rd anniversary yesterday of Antietam and, and yeah. do Antietam because it is the anniversary. So at Antietam is where you you first see the more uh, consolidated Irish Brigade, not just the 69th New York as you did at, at Bull Run, um, fighting, although the 69th again tend to dominate the story. And because at this point Corcoran's in prison somewhere down south, the Irish Brigade became taken over by another charismatic or much more slippery figure called Thomas Francis Marr, who, if anyone listens to this knows anything of Irish history, was one of the Young Islanders and, and part of the Irish nationalist movement in the 1840s, had um, actually been convicted and sent to Van Diemen's Land, like many of that lot. Van Diemen's <laughs> Land? Tasmania, yeah. Really? Yeah, you have to keep checking in the sources. Mm-hmm. Um and like many of the Young Islanders, launches a great escape and comes to America in the 1850s. And he also is part of the 69th New York. And as a result of the fact that Corcoran's captured, manages to get into the top job very quickly. So he's leading the men at, at Antietam. And there's this particular moment where they go and attack a, what's effectively a sunken road. If you, you see photos of it, it's this long path of big banks to the either side. And they're sort of charging down this road and the Confederates are just picking them off one by one. Um, so much so to the point where there is reports that by the end of it, you didn't even need to touch the f- ground. You were just walking over dead bodies. But they put in an incredible service at this on this sunken road. It gets um, renamed the Bloody Lane. And there's actually a, a report that was written by a Confederate soldier from Mississippi who was witnessing the charge of the 69th New York and the Irish Brigade at this. And he, he said... and. The Irish Brigade sometimes get called Mars Brigade. It's interchangeable because of the fact that he was commanding them. He said, The gallantry of the men of Mars Brigade and the superb courage of their commanding officers on that bloody day. They stood in line on their ridge in plain view with three flags as colours, one the Stars and Stripes, one a Massachusetts state flag, and one and, and one the green flag of the, with the Harp of Erin. Our men kept those flags falling fast, while they raised them just as fast again, still de- de- defiant. And it's where you really start to see not just how willing, committed, even against all the odds the Irish were performing military charges, but also that they were doing this not just for their Irish honour, but for America too. And so is there an example, since you're such a fan of Gettysburg, um, <laughs> can you, is there a similar example of like, did the Irish play a defining role at, or even an important role at, at Gettysburg? they're there at Gettysburg um, to really quickly explain how, where, where they get to Gettysburg you have to talk about Fredericksburg first um, in December of 1862 so about roughly about seven months before Gettysburg at Fredericksburg it's the one and only time where all five main regiments that are you can say are Irish Brigade regiments are fighting and they perform this charge up a hill called Mary's Heights. This is what Plunkett's involved in with another wave. Um, although 21st Massachusetts, not not Irish brigade, heavily Irish um, dominated. They go up this hill and perform this charge up to Confederates who are at a, a stone wall who are just picking them off again. In fact, in many ways, it's the Union version of Pickett's Charge, but it's often overlooked because Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg has such a cultural and historical memory um, 
You've got to admire 19th century military tactics. Either stand in plain view and get shot at, or run up a hill and get shot at. Yeah, a lot of the stuff yeah. I read, you just think, no, like what, it's so, it's so obvious. It's, it's a good it's, thing that the American Civil War was the last time people engaged in such stupid <laughs> tactics. I mean, yeah, it never, yeah. never happened again. Yeah. Or that those, major conflict. those observers from Britain who were watching went, yeah. "Yeah, we'll take some of these ideas back. I mean, yeah. That will work." Yeah, completely um, ignored them. <laughs> and and what happens at Fredericksburg? Obviously, as Plunkett's an example of, is that they're heavily injured and a lot of them die. And Roughly 45% of the fighting strength of the Irish Brigade is lost over the few days of battle at Fredericksburg. Which means by the time they get to Gettysburg, um, effectively they're a brigade in name only. gets a little bit confusing because in Chicago, some of the, the units in Chicago call themselves Irish Brigade too in honour of their northeastern cousins, although they're not, not the same Irish Brigade. But there's an Irish Brigade regiment um, present at Gettysburg. There's also the 69th Pennsylvania, to bring some Pennsylvanian mm -hmm. bias back in again, who are also um, made up of men from Ireland and Irish-descended men. And they're 69th in honour of the 69th New York. Also um, remnants of the 116th Pennsylvania, who are Irish Brigade. And they are there throughout the battle, but also they are there on Seminary Ridge and Cemetery Ridge um, watching Pickett's Charge happen and fold in and are present at at the high watermark of the Confederacy, to use the old the old way of speaking about it, um, and are there right, you know, stopping the Confederate advance further north. There are also, again, a lot of Georgian regiments present inside the Confederacy army at um, Gettysburg too. And at Gettysburg, there's a very famous moment involving the Irish, which um, is depicted in the film, actually, the great Gettysburg film, um, on the second day of the battle, in, in the 2nd of July, 1863, Father Corby, who was an Irish Brigade chaplain, calls the men together of the 116th Pennsylvania, so the remnants of the Irish Brigade, for one big, huge mass absolution and contrition. And uh, there are other men are drawn near to watch this big moment. There's actually now a statue on the battlefield sort of depicting this. And there's a report was written by an uh, officer from the 140th Pennsylvanian who actually was a predominantly Ulster Scots um, regiment. And he wrote, The Irish Brigade, whose green flag had been unfurled on almost every battle from Bull Run until this hour, stood in column of regiments close in order with bared heads while their chaplain priest, Father Corby, stood upon a larger boulder addressing the men. Intrinsically, every man of our regiment took off his cap and no doubt many a prayer from men of Protestant faith who could not conscientiously bow the knee in service of that nature went up to God in that impressive and awe-inspiring moment. And it's one of these things where you, so often in Irish history, you, sectarianism dominates and you can sometimes over try and over find it in the 19th century. But this is one where they, the Irish are all coming together, no matter what their background, as Union soldiers and as Americans. So we've talked quite a lot about the the north, the experience of uh, the northern uh, northern American Irish. I was going to say northern Irish. Yeah, you have to be really careful, really <laughs> careful. I can, I can understand the challenges faced <laughs> in this topic. Uh, so we can turn for a moment to the the south, and because the north seems to, as as you've said, dominate the historiography uh, of Irish Americans. But but what about the south and the sort of what the contribution of of Irish Americans to the southern cause, the cause of the Confederacy? Yeah, well, they're, they're present not so much in any specific units, but they're men throughout uh, the Confederate um, regiments from Irish backgrounds and Scots-Irish backgrounds, like I said, from pretty much every state. 
Louisiana has the most. It's got nine regiments and infantry companies that um, are Irish connected. That's indicative of the fact that Louisiana or New Orleans, New Orleans certainly um, in 1860 had the largest population of Irish uh, born and descended people. That's because it's a port city. It's actually the similar equivalent to what, why you see so many in New York and in Philadelphia. Um, and they're present at lots of the lots of battlefields. You have the Emerald Greens or the Jasper Greens, who are a Georgia regiment that also actually um, existed pre pre the war. You also get um, in the same way that you do in the north, but you get cases of sort of Irish born and descended men and officers leading um, Confederate units. And the most famous and in terms of Confederate generals, overlooked general is uh, is Patrick Claiborne, who had been born in County Cork and has actually served in the, the British Army um, before he migrated in the 1840s. He's uh, actually Protestant, not not Catholic, which makes a difference for some of the Union generals. And he settled in, in Arkansas. He um, became naturalised in, in 1860. And he joined the Confederate cause, like many did, just because it was... It was their home and fought to defend. He wasn't particularly pro or, or anti-slavery. And he, like Corcoran, actually in many ways similar to Corcoran, had been part of a militia. He then goes on to be a colonel and then general of the 59th Arkansas. He's at Shiloh, Chattanooga, the Battle of Atlanta. He dies at the Battle of Franklin and is really heavily lamented. And he's got this huge memorial statue. And, and like all Confederate generals, he's got roads named after him. He proposed something quite interesting, though, didn't he? He, he did. Um really interesting he proposed that back in early 1863 actually that the army of tennessee should take in slaves but that those slaves should be emancipated so he raises the suggestion of emancipating slaves you sure he wasn't shot by friendly fire by any chance (laughs) no no (laughs) he he, the uh, franklin happens later but he he um probably maybe didn't rise up the ranks Mm. quite as quickly or as high as he could have done because of this the idea was just just rejected outright but He argued, um, this is what his argument was, he said that it is said that slavery is all we are fighting for, and if we give it up, we give it all up. Even if this were true, which we deny, slavery is is not all our enemies are fighting for. It's merely the pretense of establishing sectional superiority and a more centralised form of government, and to deprive us of our rights and liberties. So he was really ardent states' rights supporter, but didn't see that the arming of slaves would he thought that that might go down well, um, which obviously it didn't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the overall experience of like Southern Irish is 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 quite interesting. I, think, I mean, then David Gleason's work um, from the University of Northumbria, Northern, yeah. yes, and he sort of he suggests that the Irish in the South actually weren't all that loyal. Like when Sherman arrived in Atlanta, they they were more happy to work with them than others were, but also. And so you would think that maybe they might be a good target for the the Republican Party during Reconstruction after the Civil War, but actually they're on the front line of, you know, getting rid of the getting rid of Republicanism and you know, forcing blacks out of office or freedmen as they were called at the time out of office, um, and so they have this sort of mixed legacy in terms of where where they actually stood, where their loyalties lay. Yes, um, David Gleason has has done a lot of work. Um, he's a really good comparison between looking at them in Charleston and in in Georgia and Savannah. There is the suggestion that he raises that they didn't seem to mind that Sherman was coming through, that they found a way of dealing with the situations, put it that way. There's sort of early um, 
scallywags really as you see in reconstruction so that the, the local residents of the south who were fine with the change of order that is a really interesting argument and actually you know that kind of ties into the gone with the wind story of the of the scarlet and her family because mm. they're, they're um, from irish roots too you have to be quite careful with that argument because i think you have to look at it in line with what an earth confederate nationalism was during the war actually even pre-war sort of southern difference and then and then how they tried to establish a national identity and national structures the type of thing that might require about five or six podcasts to discuss well it's, yes. exactly <laughs> I, you, we'll, we'll provide a link to paul quidley's uh book on that yeah that exact subject which is, which is very good and not just saying that because we know paul <laughs> yes yeah um there i mean a lot of work is being done um on on confederate nationalism and and you know, trying to establish home front communities and, and what they went through during and the huge losses that they had and then sort of you know, disaffection um, and how the Irish in living at home fitted into that. I think I think it's part of that, you know, by 1864-65 when Sherman's marching through war weariness, some of them probably would have gone, okay, let's try and make the best out of a situation here. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether, I mean, they're not just the only ones down there, there are Germans down there too living in the south um also you know trying to make the best of a situation they just offer up a very interesting comparative to the north because they go to show that the irish americans are not homogenous at all and that what goes on in the north and the, the northern experience in new york isn't the same at all down south and then yeah their, their war service is different too to, to come back to the north and we're probably gonna have to do this very quite quickly um but in terms of looking at the home front, which is probably good since you think that we'll focus too much on the home front <laughs> and the historiography things, yeah. and we'll focus a lot on the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll maybe bring it back to what was the topic of uh, our last podcast on the Civil War, which was the draft riots. Um, and you, you, you know, chatting before this podcast, you were saying that you think that the historiography in some ways has been bastardized by these riots and the perceptions that they, they've left of Irish Americans because. Then, I, uh, Malcolm, if you want to come in. Yeah, because I mean, is this, is, to follow on from what I'm saying, is this a case of a single notable event that's kind of dominated perceptions, even historical perceptions, of Irish attitudes towards the Civil War? Like, the draft riots of 1863, no, no, we don't want to fight, we are not going to fight for that Lincoln guy and all that kind of thing. And that kind of, that perception of that is what happened, which you will make clear perhaps isn't quite the whole story, has that kind of gone on to dominate perceptions of Irish involvement in the Civil War? I think so, because the, the draft riots are one of those standard history of the Civil War draft riots always comes up. And then when you look at who's involved, yes, okay. So it's a lot of working class people in New York City, amongst which are a lot of Irishmen who riot. And they are the main actors in the riots um, to a great extent. It ties into fears that they had that... Um, to do with the Emancipation Proclamation and fears that freed blacks would come up to the north and flood flood the employment market, which, as I mentioned, with uh, stuff to do with no Irish need apply, they felt that they were being excluded from. <clears throat> but you have to also look at it in a much wider context of, of war weariness and disillusionment in general. Now, this is Susanna Ewell's argument that they were disillusioned because they were putting in horrific losses on the battlefield and maybe not getting the home front attention and then suddenly the draft was upon them. There was a lot of infighting and politics about Thomas Francis Marr and the leadership of, of the Irish Brigade. 
I think you have to put the draft rights, and I know David talks about this in the in the other podcast you did, you have to put it into a kind of more general context of it's midway through the war, they're tired, no one thought that the war was going to develop the way that it did, this is the first sort of massive war on this scale, and when you, it's a civil war, there are, there are never ever one two opposing sides of just the same opinions opposing each other there are thousands and thousands and thousands of different views and when you start looking at it in terms of what the soldiers are saying and the soldiers experience and the fact that actually some of them thought Lincoln was perfectly fine and they may have been Democrat but Lincoln was okay because actually even Lincoln's Republican credentials possibly change I mean he's, you know there is no Republican party that he's a part of in the 1864 election when you put it all into that context, you have to look at the draft rights and the Irish involvement and go, well, it's one city. It doesn't necessarily reflect everything. In Illinois, they're all very supportive of Lincoln because he's a local boy made president. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I do question not the importance of the draft rights and the Irish involvement, but actually just the level of which this has dominated historiography um, since, because... It totally ignores the military side and the fact that there are Irishmen present in the Union troops who come from Gettysburg to stop the Irish and stop the rioting going on. It's only 10 days after Gettysburg. There are Irish in the army who are kind of going, stop, you stop rioting now, calm down, New York. When you put it into that context, this plays to a, a general feeling in Ireland and in amongst Irish American communities that... They're the forgotten Irish. The soldiers of the Civil War are forgotten about because everyone there's focuses on... There's even a hashtag, I believe. There's even a hashtag, forgotten Irish. Mm. And there is there is some really great stuff online of trying to promote um, and spread the fact that there is sort of a, a cultural legacy and their writings and, and their experiences that is, is not really known about. You have to put it into a much bigger context. I'm... Seeing as you mentioned kind of the, the cultural legacy there, uh, we should perhaps turn and give time to you know the area that you're you're particularly researching the uh, you know popular culture in the form of particular particularly song, uh, and how that forms a part of the the Irish American Civil War experience and the legacy of the Irish American Civil War experience. So recalling the the, the paper you gave uh, the Sasa uh, conference, tell us about the story. What's the the Bonnie Blue Flag? Before she tells us the story, I'm going to play us a little clip. Oh, great. sample of the the wonderful tuneful um you sound chart topping bonnie blue flag it was <laughs> it was chart topping so tell us what, what what was the bonnie blue flag all about so the bonnie blue flag um the actual song is about confederate secession it lists almost in order it's slightly lyrically 
um, embellished the order of secession of, of the southern states and it's all pro pro southern rights and, and pro the south it was written in early 1861 the actual flag that it refers to is a flag that was allegedly f flung around the mississippi state convention at the time of their secession it's a flag that flew during the very short-lived republic of west florida um, in the earlier 19th century and it was written by a songwriter and entertainer called Harry McCarthy, who either saw this happen or just haven't heard it happen. And it really was chart topping. This this song spread like wildfire <laughs> around the South. I mean, there are I've got newspaper reports of him performing this throughout the South very quickly. In fact, he performs it in Tennessee only a couple of days later. From I, thought, I thought one of the reasons the South lost the Civil War was the lack of infrastructure. How is he getting from all the all these places? Well, music publishing is is this is before the Southern music publishing <laughs> um, companies realised that the paper should have been used elsewhere. Um, there, for for a brief moment, <laughs> there, certainly the music infrastructure is very good. And Harry McCarthy seemed to have been able to make a name for himself just on the back of the song. Was that? Did he have any particular attachment to the song, or was it purely? Well, he he is fascinating. This is one of the reasons I spent so long studying it. So McCarthy comes from um, it's probably most likely Scots Irish background. Um, it's most likely that he's Scots Irish, born in England, uh, then migrated as as a young boy. There's stories that he was involved with Barnum's lots up in up in Philadelphia. Um, before the war and he'd written other songs and, and productions that musical productions um, before the war now the fact that he uses the bonnie blue flag uh, the tune that that wonderful tune that you seem to like mark um, <laughs> is actually a much older 18th early 19th century irish tune which was set to songs there's at least three versions of this song called the irish jaunting car and thus the tune um, in my stuff is i just call it the irish jaunting car tune now, what this goes to show is that Irish music um, was already pretty well known and established in America by the time of the Civil War. In fact, one of the reasons the Bonnie Blue Flag probably spread so quickly was that it was a tune that people would have known about. Um, and there are many other tunes where this um, can be said. It's part of a of a, not only the cultural diaspora of migrant tunes, but also the Americanization of migrant tunes. Now, the most famous being the Star Spangled Banner, which is actually an English glee club drinking song from the 18th century most people now just see it as being american um and so the bonnie blue flag is, is just part of of one of many there are lots of german songs too maryland my maryland um is the state song of maryland uh and is set to a german song that we all know the tune of as a christmas tree or perhaps the red flag which keeps getting a lot of airing at the moment it's the same tune but that was known in that had gone over that tune's actually 15th century german but it had gone over to america by 1860 for it to be used as the, the tune base so these are essentially the mashups of the age yeah, <laughs> yeah well it's it actually comes from hymn practice um the really quick way of learning hymn songs and religious songs was to set it to tunes that were already known so you have to different i differentiate between the tunes and then the songs and the lyrics um because they both have different historical journeys but it when there is no real copyright uh, this is yeah. the easiest way of learning a tune other cultural legacy side is that they also write great memoirs amongst the thousands and thousands of memoirs mm. that the civil war delights us civil war historians and i've actually got a fantastic quote here from from one of them which he's talking about the irish but it's actually just it's about anyone it's confederate and union too so this is from um a private 
who was in the Irish Brigade called William McCarter, who'd been born in Derry. And he, like Plunkett at Fredericksburg on Mary's Heights, goes through his own little injury um, checklist. He gets shot in the ankle, the shoulder and the arm. He eventually passes out on Mary's Heights. And he, when he wakes up, it's sort of the middle of the night and he doesn't know whether or not to move or not. And this is, this is what he years later described as what he saw. At night, I still laid on the ground directly to the Confederate front, awaiting a safe opportunity to rise up and get out of the range of their fire. About every 10 minutes, a storm of bullets came from behind the stone wall, only 50 paces to my front. The sudden flashing of fire with, of their muskets in the darkness for a second time so illuminated the faces of this part of the Confederate army that the men looked strangely savage and red, more like devils than human beings. Then the blackness and darkness of night covered them. The only sounds heard were the shrieks and groans of our wounded and dying, strewn on every side like scattered seed. Truly, war is sad. And it's a brilliant quote, which, you know, he's an Irishman, but this is an experience that so many thousand millions experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very poignant and kind of appropriate quote to end uh, our discussion. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we can only thank you, Kelly. I, I can certainly say, I don't know about you, Malcolm, but at the beginning of my second year, I couldn't have even talked about yeah, my thesis I, for about five minutes. I, so I, that, that, was, that was very illuminating and yeah. incredibly informative. And yeah. I think that's the least we've talked on any episode of the podcast. Yes, uh, actually, it's the two Civil War episodes that we've talked the least <laughs> on. You know, like we try not try not to buy anything. So it's an old historian too, which said, let us go. Thank you very yeah, much. For thank that, you very much. Appreciate it. And also, the one last thing, now that you've done this, the other thing you have to do for us is take care of the American history courses. You're going to be tutoring on it this year and for the first time in five years at Edinburgh, me and Malcolm won't be teaching yeah. American history. Pass, at least the so so th thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we will shall be back uh, about exactly a month from now um, and cheerio. Goodbye. Sisters and daughters With a pipe in his mouth Such a dashing young blade And a tune he was looting so gaily He was honest Pat Murphy of Myers Brigade And he sang of the land of Shillelagh Is Pat, it's strange for to see brothers fighting in such a queer manner. But I'll fight till I die if ever I'm killed for America's bright starry banner. Now, if it was only John Bull to the fore, I'd rush into battle quite gaily with a small peen I'd wrap with a harp and a half. But me have against Sprig of Shillelagh.